Good morning. There is just one scripture reading this morning from John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Well, good morning. Great to see everybody. Uh, good morning and, and happy summer. Happy summer. This past uh, Wednesday marked the first official day of summer. And, and I, I don't know about you. Uh, it, for me, it's not even close. I, I love summer. It's by far my favorite season. Uh, I, I, love, I love everything about it. I love you know, the more relaxed pace, obviously. Uh, I love vacation season. I have so many good memories of family vacations. Uh, I love going to the beach. Uh, frankly, I love any chance to publicly take my shirt off. I'm just really proud of, 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 of my body. Uh, I love the weather. I, 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 honestly, I don't mind the heat. I don't mind the humidity. Uh, I grew up in a, in a very cold climate in Michigan. We had long winters and, and short summers, and, and I just don't mind it. I will never complain about the heat. I think I'm still thawing out from 18 years of, of my life in Michigan. And, and as good as all of that is, as good as all that is, I, I actually think, at least for me, I actually think that the, the, the piece of summer that I like the best, the piece of summer that has the most nostalgia attached to it, the most good memories attached to it, is the food and drink. The food and drink that comes along with summertime. I mean, there's, there's just there's nothing better than the perfect afternoon or the perfect evening and you're outside with friends and family and the conversation is good and there's laughter and the food is good and the drink is good. Maybe there's some, there's some, there's some meat on the grill, uh, some perfectly buttered corn on the cob, some, some fresh juicy watermelon, some strawberry shortcake and a cold drink in your hand. Maybe, maybe an Arnold Palmer, maybe a cold beer, maybe a glass of sangria. Some of you are starting to get hungry. I sort of am. I sort of am just talking about it. I mean, for me, for me, the goodness of summer isn't just something I believe in. The goodness of summer isn't just something I know about. For me, the goodness of summer is something I can taste. I can taste it. And God 
God wants the same to be true of him. In Psalm 34, David talks about tasting God's goodness. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This is a one-off sermon. We're kind of going to kind of get into our, our normal summer program next week. But, but for this week, for one week, we're going to talk about tasting God's goodness. Making it real in your life. Making God's goodness tangible in your life. And, and our thesis this morning is this. Our thesis this morning is that the core of your relationship with God, the core of your relationship with God ought to be something that you enjoy. It ought to be something that you delight in, that you take joy from. The core of your relationship with God ought to be something that's so good, you can taste it. You can taste it the way you can taste a really good meal. And I think that's got to be one of the reasons why food and drink play such important roles all throughout Scripture. And they do. The Bible starts with food and it ends with food. From forbidden fruit in Genesis to the heavenly feast in Revelation. And, you know, in between, there's, there's milk and honey, barley and olives, loaves and fishes, figs, uh, wine, bread. It's all over the place, and it's all in there. There's so much food in the Bible. Jesus loved to eat, by the way, too. He eats a lot. In fact, he's even accused of being a, a glutton and a drunkard. He loves food. Some of his best parables revolve around food, whether it's a, it's a wedding feast or a fattened calf. And, and some of his most famous miracles revolve around food whether it's the time he famously turns a child's boxed lunch into enough food to feed 5,000 people, or the story that we're going to talk about this morning when he famously turns water into wine. Scriptures use food all over the place to illustrate qualities about God and the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have with God, a relationship with God that's so good we can taste it. We can taste it. In this story, in this story, Jesus uses wine He uses wine to illustrate how abundantly joyful our relationship with him ought to be. I love, I love that this story centers around wine. I mean, I just love it. Maybe there's a little bit of rebellion in me or something, but I just love that this story centers around wine. I mean, wine is so good. It is. There's a lot of biblical symbolism around wine, and we'll get to some of that. But just, just on a literal level, wine is so good. Now, obviously, obviously, it needs to be enjoyed with moderation, and the, the Bible gives us pretty clear warnings about that. It says, do not get drunk on wine. That leads to debauchery. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of churches, particularly churches in the Midwest where I grew up, have replaced the communion wine with the communion Welch's grape juice, the risk of debauchery, and, and the fact that Thomas Welch, this is true, Thomas Welch was a savvy church-going businessman during the Prohibition. Pretty smart. Nevertheless, if enjoyed appropriately, wine is so good. It just is. I mean, for, for connoisseurs of wine, drinking wine, there's, there's, there's no experience that's more succulent, that's more sensational than taking in wine. You're taking in its color, its fragrance, its flavor. And you don't have to be, you don't have to be a connoisseur to appreciate it. You don't have to be a connoisseur to appreciate the fact that, that wine brings out flavors in food. It brings out conversation. It enhances conversation. Wine turns a meal into an occasion. It lifts eating far beyond nourishment into a new joyful reality. So wine does. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to lift you into a new joyful reality. When when, when David, in Psalm 34, when David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
He assumes that his readers know that the Lord is good. He assumes that they believe that God is good. He's pushing us to experience God in a way that we can taste it, that we can sense it in our lives in a very real, very tangible way. The Bible pushes us way beyond belief. The Bible pushes us way beyond belief that God is good. The Bible wants us to experience God's goodness in your life. Jonathan Edwards has a, has a famous sermon on this topic, and I want to read you three sentences from that sermon. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. The point, and the point of our sermon this morning, the point of our sermon this morning is that Christianity invites us not to a series of beliefs, Not to a series of beliefs, but to a delightful, enjoyable experience. You've been invited not to know about the goodness and the holiness of God. You've been invited to experience those things. And the difference between believing in those things and experiencing those things is as stark as the difference between somebody trying to explain to you how honey is sweet and tasting its sweetness for yourself. That's what Jonathan Edwards is trying to say in that quote. We're going to talk this morning about how we can taste God's goodness, how we can infuse this kind of joy into our relationships with God. But before we get to the how, I need to show you two really important and really interesting things that this story shows us about Jesus. So before we get to how we can taste God's goodness, I want to show you two things that this story reveals about Jesus. First, this story shows us that Jesus comes to bring festival joy. He comes to bring festival joy. That's the reason he comes to earth. Second of all, this story shows us that Jesus himself is the source of joy. He's the source of joy. We'll get to that in a minute, but first, let me show you that Jesus comes to bring festival joy. That's the reason why he comes. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs. The very first miracle that Jesus performs is to resupply wine at a wedding party. By the way, if you're looking for evidence that the Bible is true, I mean, this story gives it to us. This story gives it to us because, because if you and I, if we were inventing a biography of Jesus, if we were writing a biography of our Savior, we, we would never write it this way. We would have the first miracle be something really big and world-changing. Healing uh, a disease, raising somebody from the dead, uh, feeding lots of hungry people. We would never write the story this way. And yet, this is what Jesus does. This is what he chooses to do for his first miracle. And it says at the end of the story that this is how he reveals his glory. Jesus reveals his glory by producing 150 gallons of choice wine. It's a lot of wine. It's about 750 bottles of wine. A winery would need one ton of grapes to produce that much wine. This is more than enough wine to keep his party going for a long time. And Jesus chooses this to reveal his glory. Jesus chooses this to to be his first miracle, to turn a dying party into an incredible party. What Jesus is saying is, there's a lot of things you need to know about me, but this is the first one. This is the primary thing you need to know about me. I have come to bring festival joy. I have come as the Lord of the feast. Yes, there will be suffering. 
Yes, there will be sacrifice. Yes, there will be the cross. But, but, but those things, those things are all a means to an end. In the end, the end is a magnificent, joyful feast with a lot of wine. See, Jesus has a lot of characteristics. There's a lot of things about himself that he could have revealed first. But he says, this is primary. This is the first thing you need to know about me. I've come to bring festival joy. Have you ever met somebody who says, I don't want to go to church. I don't want Jesus in my life. I don't want Christianity. I mean, there's too many rules. I want to enjoy myself. I want to have fun. I mean, people, people who are saying that are rejecting Jesus ignorantly. They don't even know what they're rejecting. They don't even know what they're rejecting. If you're rejecting God because you think it's all about rules, you don't even know what you're rejecting. One of my favorite, actually, it probably is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, if I had to pick one. It's Psalm 37, 4. It says this, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That verse has meant a lot to me personally over the years. In fact, it was, was my wife that first kind of turned me on to that verse when we were when we were dating, and actually it's inscribed on the inside of my wedding band. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love that verse because it says two really profound things about God. First of all, it says that God's goal is to fulfill our heart's deepest desires. That's what God wants to do. And second of all, it says that the way God is going to do that, the way God will fulfill your deepest desires, is by us delighting in him. Delighting in him, not by us begrudgingly obeying a set of rules. The way God will fulfill your heart's deepest desires is by you delighting in a relationship with him. I mean, there are some rules, of course. There are some rules, of course. But actually, among the rules, among the commandments that's most often repeated in the Bible is a commandment to rejoice, a commandment to celebrate, a commandment to be joyful. The book of Leviticus The book of Leviticus is the most rule-heavy book in the entire Bible. And towards the end of the book, about three-fourths of the way through the book, is a chapter, an entire chapter, chapter 23, which is dedicated to rules, to commandments about how to celebrate. It's there. Check it out. God fills up, God fills up the Israelites' social calendar with eight different festivals that they are required, required to celebrate. Some of them occur once a year, like the Passover. It's once a year. Others, like the, like the Sabbath festival, it's once a week. In other words, God is saying every once in a while, on these eight different occasions, you're required to stop everything you're doing and just celebrate. Just enjoy me. Just taste my goodness. Don't do anything else. Just celebrate my goodness. And that's what Jesus comes to show us. That's what we see in this story. Jesus comes to give us this kind of festival joy. That's the reason he came to earth, to provide festival joy. The second thing we see in this story is that Jesus himself is the source of joy. He's the source of joy. He's the provider of this wine that keeps the party going. He's the source of it all. I mean, how often have you and I made the mistake of thinking that our joy or that our happiness comes from things? Joy doesn't come from things. It comes from a person, or more specifically, knowing a person. It comes from our relationship with God, because Jesus himself, God himself, is the source of joy. And we make the mistake of thinking that our joy comes from things. God gives us good gifts. God gives us good things. But, but the things are all signposts. The things are all signposts that point us to the source of joy. And if we make the mistake of fixating on the good gifts that God gives us, it's like fixating on, on footprints without focusing on where they're trying to lead you. 
I've, I've made the mistake a lot in my life of assuming that if something makes me happy, then twice as much of it ought to make me twice as happy. Or maybe three times would make me three times as happy. But, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. How many times have you been, have you been out with friends? And, and you know that the evening is perfect. The conversation is good. The laughter is good. The food is good. The drink is good. And you don't want it to end. You hold on to it as tightly as you can because you don't want it to end. You order another round. You order more food. You order dessert. But it has to end at some point. It has to end at some point because the little joys, the little joys can't last forever. I mean, if they did, if we tried to make them last forever, it leads to gluttony and irresponsibility. The little joys are just appetizers, whetting our appetite for the big joy, for the big joy, for the real joy. And the real joy is different. The real joy is actually something we can hold on to. The real joy is something we can hold on to tightly, and it will never leave us. Paul in the New Testament talks a lot about his own joy. He spends a lot of time writing about his own joy. And he never talks about his joy in the context of things on earth he's enjoying. In fact, he even says things like, I consider everything else trash. I consider it rubbish. I consider it garbage compared to the joy of knowing Christ. He gets such joy from this relationship with Christ. And he even says things like, like in Philippians 3, he says, if this means so much to me, I want to hold on to it so tightly that I want to know Christ in his fullness, even in his suffering, even in his death. In other words, he's saying, I get such joy from this that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to, to sacrifice my, even myself. I'm willing to die if that's what it takes to hold on to this joy. And the question is, what kind of joy is that? I mean, what kind of person is this that it leads to such joy that you're willing to give up everything to, to hold on to it? That's a deep joy. That's a transcendent joy. That's an incredible joy. And the question is, how do we get that joy? How do we taste God's goodness like that so that we want to hold on to it no matter what? Well, I want to quickly point out four things in this story. Four, I think, relatively specific steps that we can take in order to uh, taste God's goodness in our lives. We'll spend a, a couple of minutes or so on each of these, on each of these things. First, uh, you have to be thirsty for it. You have to be thirsty for it. The first thing to, in order to taste God's goodness in your life is you have to be thirsty for it. Second, you have to admit that you're empty. Admit that you're empty. Third, you have to understand the cost of filling you up the cost of filling you up. And fourth, you have to let it go to your head. Let it go to your head. You don't need to remember those. I'll go through all of them with you. You have to be thirsty for it. You have to admit that you're empty. You have to understand the cost of filling you up, and you have to let it go to your head. The first step, the first step to tasting God's goodness is you have to be thirsty for it. You have to long for it. You have to really want it. You ought to start to get really unhappy that you don't have it, that you don't have this kind of joy. You have to long for it. You have to thirst for it the way a man would thirst for water if he was stranded in a dry desert. David says in Psalm 63, he says this. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I mean, that's, that's not the cry of somebody who, who wants a little refreshment. That's the cry of somebody who's dying of thirst, dying of thirst in a dry and parched desert. And that's the first step to tasting God's goodness. You just have to want it. You have to long for it. You have to be really unhappy that you don't have it in your life. 
And the second thing, the second thing you have to do to taste his goodness is you have to acknowledge to yourself and to God that you don't have anything in your life that can quench that thirst. You have to admit that you're empty. And that's what we see in this story. Notice how this story starts. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, we're out of wine. We're out. And that's what we have to do first. We have to admit that we're empty. We're not coming to Jesus with a glass half full saying, can you top me off? I've got a lot of other things in my life that bring me some joy, but I'm, I'm hearing about your joy, and maybe I want to little, put a little of that in the mix. Now, we have to come to Jesus and say, I'm out. I'm empty. I've got nothing. I've blown it. My life is a disaster without you. And Jesus won't make his first move until you're willing to get to that point, until you're willing to say, I'm out. I'm completely empty. You have to be thirsty for it. You have to be thirsty for it. And you have to admit that you don't have anything that can quench that kind of thirst. And then notice what happens. Notice what happens in this story. It's an amazing picture of what it means to become a Christian. When you do that, when you want it, and you admit that you're out, Jesus lets us take credit for the work that he's done. I mean, look at this groom. I mean, this groom has blown it. You know what I mean? I don't want to over-dramatize it. It was kind of a big deal. Weddings were much bigger deals in this time than they are now. Uh, th- this, would, this would be uh, kind of the focal point of the village for several days. And, and you know, it's the groom's responsibility to, to, to make this a great party. How in, the, how in the world is this groom supposed to, supposed to provide for this girl if he can't even provide enough wedding, if he can't even provide enough wine for the village for a few days? I, I mean, it sounds a little silly, but, but this is actually a pretty big social faux pas. This, this groom has screwed this up. He's screwed up this wedding. And yet, at the end of the story, at the end of the story, people are going to this groom who's blown it. He's totally blown it. And they're saying, nobody does this. Nobody saves the best wine for last. This is the best party I've ever been to. The groom, the groom who's blown this gets to take full credit for the work that Jesus did on his behalf. It's an amazing picture of what it means to become a Christian. And you ought to be asking yourself, what exactly has Jesus done for me that I get to take credit for? What exactly has Jesus done for me that I get to take credit for? And there's a lot, but there's one big one that you really need to understand. And this story points to it. There's one big thing. There's one big, uh, one big thing that Jesus has done for us in order so that we can be filled up. And it costs a lot. And it costs a lot. So the key to understanding the cost, the key to understanding the cost, really the key to understanding this whole story is to look at the interaction that Jesus has with Mary here. See, Mary comes to Jesus, and she says, uh, we're out of wine. And Jesus has this sort of strange response. It's, it's almost rude. It's, very, it's a very gruff, uh, sort of brusque response. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And I, I always used to read that and assume that he was saying it's not time for him to do a miracle yet. But that can't possibly be the case. I mean, I mean Jesus, Jesus is the greatest movement leader who's ever existed Everything he does, everything he says is extremely calculated. And it can't possibly be the case that he wasn't ready to do a miracle yet, but then all of a sudden he turns around and decides to do it anyway. That can't be the case. So what, how do we explain this? How do you explain this sort of weird, almost rude, gruff response that Jesus has to his mom here? Well, I like what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says the only way to really explain this is to understand that, that, that Jesus is troubled by something. He's sitting here in the middle of this wedding feast, but he's troubled by something. He's thinking about something else. He's thinking about something else. And you say, well, what, what's he thinking about? What's, he, what's troubling him? Well, if you're a single person, like Jesus is, if you're a single person and you go to a wedding, what are you thinking about? 
You're thinking about your own wedding. I mean, I used to go to weddings before I was married, and I'd be sitting there, and I'd be thinking, man, I wonder if this is ever going to happen to me. I wonder if I'll ever find somebody who will want to spend their life with me. I mean, I would, I would be going to other people's wedding celebrations, and they're having such a good time, and here I am, and my mind is a million miles away. And here's Jesus, perhaps, at this wedding feast. People are celebrating around him, and he's, his mind is a million miles away because he's thinking about his own wedding. All throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, God talks about his relationship with us as a husband-wife relationship. All throughout Scripture, God says he wants to relate to us the way a husband relates to his wife. He says he wants to know us, to love us, to unite with us as profoundly as a husband unites with his wife. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. He calls us, the church, his bride. And so here's Jesus at a wedding. Here's Jesus at a wedding, and they're out of wine. And Jesus is thinking, what's it going to take for me to provide wine at my wedding feast? What's it going to take for me to provide wine at my wedding feast? That's the only way, I think, to explain this response. Mary comes to him and says, we're out of wine. And he says, my time has not yet come. Uh, That's the NIV. Other translations say, have him saying, my hour has not yet come. That might be a better translation. When Jesus says, my hour, he's talking about the hour of his death. He uses that phrase periodically, the hour. So basically, Mary says, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, it's not time for me to die yet. I think that's, a, I think that's a one way to understand this conversation. Jesus is, is thinking, he's sitting there in the middle of this wedding feast, and he's thinking about his own wedding. He's thinking about what it's going to take for him to provide wine at his own wedding. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to require him to go through the hour, the hour of his death. He's sitting there thinking about what it's going to take to provide us, his lover, with the cup of eternal joy that he wants to offer us. And in order for him to offer us that cup, he himself is going to have to drink from the cup of eternal justice. And, and, and you know, that's the cup that we're supposed to drink from. We're supposed to be the ones drinking from the cup of eternal justice. That's the cup we deserve to drink from. And yet on the cross, Jesus takes that cup from us, and he drinks from it, and he, gives, he drinks from it, and he gives us, in its place, this cup. Of, of wine that only he can offer, this cup of eternal joy. In order for that to happen, in order for us to be united with God the way we were meant to be united with him, we have to go through a cleansing. We have to go through a cleansing, and that cleansing can only happen through Christ's blood. And the story shows us that. The story, I mean, the story literally happened, but it's also a great metaphor for what's going to happen later in Jesus' life. Notice how Jesus turns the water into wine. He has them pour water into jars that were used by the Jews for ceremonial cleansing. He's saying there's going to have to be a cleansing. For me to provide wine at my wedding feast, at the real wedding feast, there's going to have to be a cleansing. And of course, the wine itself is also a metaphor. At the Last Supper, Jesus takes wine and he says, This wine represents my blood. And as disturbing as it is for Jesus to talk about wine as his blood, it it gets even more disturbing because then he asks his disciples to drink it. But what he's showing us, what he's showing us is that this new covenant, this new covenant sealed by his blood goes way beyond belief. It goes way beyond forgiveness even. It goes into this mysterious transfusion of Jesus and his life and his joy coursing through your veins. And I can try to explain that to you. I can try to explain that to you intellectually. But until you've experienced it, 
Until you've experienced it, you, you, just, you just won't understand. It'll be like me trying to explain how sweet honey tastes. Until you've tasted it yourself, you just won't understand. And I'm going to have a really hard time describing it. But once you've tasted it, once you've tasted it, something amazing will happen. Once you've tasted God's goodness, it will go to your head. It will go to your head. See, that's what wine does. It goes to your head. God's goodness, once you've tasted it, will go to your head. And it will change the way you think about everything. Your joy will start to get a lot bigger. And your problems will start to get a lot smaller. Once you've tasted God's goodness and you've tasted his love for you, his, his, the taste of his love will start to, start to be so good that you'll, you'll suddenly start to care a lot less about what other people think about you and what other people say about you. Once you've tasted God's wisdom, you'll start to lean a whole lot less on the, on the wisdom of the world and, and on your own judgment. Tasting God's goodness will be so good It'll be so good that it will go to your head. It will go to your head, and it will change the way you think about everything. Because you'll understand the cost. You'll understand the cost of what it took for you to be able to drink from this cup of eternal joy. And the cost is important because understanding the cost shows us how deep and profound his love for us is. And once you understand that is one thing. But once you experience it for yourself, once you experience being embraced by your heavenly Father in the way you were meant to be embraced, it'll go to your head and it will change the way you think about everything. It will. And this world is hard. This life is hard. But that will give you joy, a deep and profound and defiant joy that will enable you to look this world in the face and say, nevertheless, whatever you bring at me, I have deep and profound joy because ultimately I know how this ends. As hard as this is, I know how this ends. And for those of us with with this joy from Jesus coursing through our veins, it ends with resurrection and it ends with this eternal wedding feast. And knowing that, knowing how it ends, ought to dictate the way you think and feel about everything. I am, a quick story I think um, kind of back to my own dating experience, speaking of weddings, I think back to my own dating experience, and, and like a lot of people, mine was, was, was kind of bumpy. Um, I was kind of always insecure and, and, uh, and, and, and that kind of thing, and, and, I, and I met this girl. I met this girl uh, freshman year of college, and I, it was weird. I didn't really even know her. Uh, we had some mutual friends in common. I didn't really know her, but for some reason, I just decided that she was the one. I just fell in love with her. I was just crazy about her. But there was this problem. This problem was she had this boyfriend. <laughs> and she had a boyfriend our freshman year. And she had a boyfriend our sophomore year. And she had a boyfriend our junior year. And finally, I had somebody take out the boyfriend. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I didn't know Randy back then. Um, the fall of our senior year, I found out that she and this boyfriend had broken up. So all of a sudden, I had a chance. All of a sudden, this was my opportunity to make a move. And I did. I asked this girl to go to the homecoming ball with me. Weird first date, but that's what I decided. It would be a good chance to get to know each other. This girl who I'd been in love with, crazy about for three years. I didn't really know her, but I'd kind of been been observing her from afar. Finally, she was single. so So I go in, and I ask her to go to the homecoming ball with me. And she says, no. Flat-out rejection. She doesn't even give an excuse. She doesn't say, like, I'm going with somebody else. She just says, no. Flat-out rejection. And I'm devastated. I'm devastated. I I can picture exactly where I was. I was outside. It was dusk. 
on the campus of Hope College. It's a beautiful place. You ought to go there and check it out. We were outside on the campus of Hope College, and my life just crashed in on me. This girl that I'd been in love with for three years said no. So I went home, totally depressed. And she called me a few hours later. She called me a few hours later, and she said, you know, I just don't really like those things. Balls, dances. But if you'd want to go out for coffee with me, I'd be up for that. Wow. I had a chance again. So a few days later, we went out for coffee. And it was a disaster. It was a total disaster. This girl that I'd been in love with for three years, all of a sudden I had a chance with her. All of a sudden I had a chance with her, and I got so nervous. I got so worried about screwing it up that I literally became a statue. I, I barely said a word the entire first date. I just, I just figured anything I said is going to make her not like me, so I'm going to not say anything. I literally hardly said anything on our first date. Uh, the second date wasn't any better. Neither was the third date. But thankfully, uh, this girl, we'll call her Sarah to protect the innocent. <laughs> thankfully, this girl had a lot of patience and a lot of grace. And uh, 14 and a half years, uh, we've, we've now been married for 14 and a half years. And I think back to that, to those first dates, and, you know, I just wish, I just wish that I could go back and relive those moments knowing what I know now, knowing that it's all going to be okay, that it's all going to be okay, because if I could go back and relive, I mean, these dates are, it's kind of this, like, embarrassing memory. Some people have fun dates. It's like, it's fun to kind of relive their first dates. It's not for me. It's it's really painful. Uh, But but if I could go back and relive those dates knowing that it's all going to work out fine, I could enjoy myself. I could be myself. I could have a good time. And of course, it doesn't work that way. We don't get the chance to go back and relive life knowing that it's all going to work out in the end. But, but the amazing thing, the amazing thing about the Christian life, the amazing thing about the gospel story is that we can live every single day as hard as it gets. Life is hard. We can live every single day knowing that in the end, it's all going to turn out fine, better than fine. Because there's a resurrection, and there's a giant wedding feast. And that ought to dictate the way you think and the way you look at everything that this life throws at you. You will be a defiantly joyful person. By the way, that doesn't mean that you're a person who just sort of ignores the pain and the suffering of this world. Actually, quite the contrary. I think Christians, because we know how it ends, because we have this ultimate joy, because we have this ultimate hope, I think that means we ought to get more engaged in the suffering of this world than anybody else. Because we can run at big problems like poverty and justice, knowing that at the end of the day, those problems are solvable. God tells us at the end of the Bible that he's going to fix those problems. So we can work today towards God's solution. We can work on those problems with more hope than the world offers. That's why I think we Christians, because we know how it ends, can get more deeply engaged in the suffering and in the needs of this world than anybody else. But the other thing is, because we know how it ends, because we know how it ends, I think it also means that we Christians ought to be the first to throw a really great party every once in a while. We ought to stop every once in a while and give ourselves a taste of this coming heavenly feast that will go on and on and on forever, forever. So here's what I think you need to do. I think you need to go home tonight or go out tonight, get yourself some really good food, really good food, and drink something really good. And as you do it, as you do it, tell yourself that this is a taste. This is a taste of God's goodness that I will get to enjoy forever and ever and ever. And you can taste it now because he's here. Because Jesus and his joy is coursing through your veins. Let's pray.
Father, um, Father, we are blown away by the fact that you want to bring us joy. We're blown away by the fact that you love us so much, that you want to bring us joy so much, that even though it costs you everything, that you had to drink from this cup of eternal justice, that you did it anyway. Father, I pray that you would help make that real in our lives. I pray that, that for, for people here, that something would happen this summer, something would happen this summer, that we would taste your goodness in a new way, that we would experience your goodness in our lives in a new, tangible way that we've never experienced before. Father, I can't describe it, but I pray that you would reveal it to, to us, that you would show us your goodness so that we can taste it in a real, tangible way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.